Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 15th, 2012, and my guest is Charles Calamaris, the Henry Kaufman Professor of Financial Institutions at Columbia University's Graduate School of Business. Charles, welcome back to Econ Talk. Great to be with you, Russ. Our topic today is financial regulation and how greater stability of the financial system might be achieved. You have been critical of the current system. The current system, of course, includes the recent past and the present. Uh, and how that might be improved. You've made some suggestions, but I want to start with some very basic ideas that we've Mm -hmm. touched on in many other podcasts, but we're going to try to go deeply into the foundations to bring people up to speed, including myself. Um, First, when we talk about a bank uh, having a particular amount of capital or we talk about capital requirements, uh, which is going to be related to what is called leverage, the ratio of debt to equity or debt to capital – Uh, What are we talking about? What does that actually mean in practice? Well, the word, pardon me, the word capital as it pertains to banking is, uh, from a regulatory standpoint, is referring to regulatory capital requirements. Regulatory capital is not just the equity value of the bank on a book value basis. It also includes other capital items. Now, <clears throat> this is a little bit tricky to explain to people who aren't familiar with uh, finance and accounting. So I think the easiest way to get at it, Russ, is the following. Capital is a shock absorber. And if you are the U.S. government and you're looking at a bank, you first look at all the deposits of the bank. And what we learned in this crisis is even the ones that don't have deposit insurance if you're going to cover them, because they're, you know, they might be in excess of 250000 but you're still covering them, you're guaranteeing them, they certainly aren't capital. They're not something that we're depending on to absorb shocks, because they're going to be, the people holding those claims against the bank are going to always be made whole, no matter what happens on the asset side of the bank's balance sheet. So what we want for capital... You're saying that because of the FDIC. You're saying because we've statutorily... Not just the FDIC. You know, Russ, we threw out the FDIC Act of 1991, complete, you know, Banana Republic style in the U.S. We we violated it. We decided not to stay with the provisions that were supposed to limit the insurance of of uninsured debt. In the midst of the crisis, we just pretended that that act didn't... We ignored it, yeah. We've talked about that before. You're talking about FDICIA, the FDIC Improvement Act. And so it's not, just to... the, it's not just the things that FDIC insures that are protected. If the government issues blanket guarantees, as we did during the crisis, and if it, you know, furthermore uh, makes Fed lending available on a very generous basis, there are lots of ways to protect different claims on the bank. But what I'm saying is if you're looking at this from a regulator standpoint or from, let's say, the taxpayer standpoint, you look at the items on <clears throat> the bank's balance sheet, The assets can go up and down in value, and you need something to absorb the shock. When the assets go down in value, somebody has to lose. 
It's just arithmetic, right? Some claims that on the bank have to fall in value when the assets of the value fall. And capital is best thought of as, if you take a realistic perspective on which claims can fall in value, those are the claims that really constitute capital of the bank. So from a regulatory perspective, we want to make sure that there's enough on the bank's balance sheet that we can realistically refer to as capital, that when the assets of the bank's balance sheet fall in value, that there's something there to absorb the shock. Because if there isn't enough of that stuff there, who's going to absorb the shock? The U.S. taxpayers. Okay, so let's talk about this in an individual level to help me understand it. Because uh, I think I understand it really well at the individual level. When I go to the bank, I get in trouble because my accounting knowledge is mediocre, and you can enhance that, I hope. So at the individual level, if I borrow, uh, if I want to buy a house that's worth uh, the costs as a price of of $250,000, and I put 20% down, I put down 50000 and I borrow the other 200000 from the from a, from a bank, then I have $50,000 of equity in the bank, excuse me, in the house. Yes. And so if the value of the house unexpectedly perhaps uh, goes down from say 250 to 225, I only owe the bank 200. So the bank's okay if the value goes down to 225. They're still happy that they lent me the money because right. if worse comes to worse and I lose my job, God forbid, and I can't pay my mortgage payments, the bank can reclaim the house. Uh, sell it for two twenty five, and uh, get their money back. Exactly. So your fifty thousand dollar down payment is capital. Correct. That's my cushion. That's my buffer. That's exactly. my shock absorber that you're talking about. Now, how does? Can you tell me a story for a financial institution? And let's start with a with a vanilla bank, which is going to be a bank that has depositors, and then maybe we'll move on to an investment bank, which is to me a little more complicated. So let's start with a vanilla bank. Okay, how, so how would the this bank, work? Let's, let's make a real simple bank. It has loans and cash for assets. Let's say it has $80 million of loans and $20 million of cash. And let's say that it has $90 million of deposits, FDIC-insured deposits, mm-hmm. on the liability side, and $10 million in capital, meaning just to keep it simple, just the equity that shareholders in the bank own. So, so I, got, the, I got lost in that because the numbers were different. So I raise money. I raise $90 million from my depositor. I'm the bank. I yeah. raise $90 million from the depositors. I take that $90 million, and what do I do with it? And, and I raise, excuse me, and I raise $10 million from people who bought my stock. Exactly. So now you have $100 million. And what do I do with it? You, and what you do is you lend out $80 million of it. In loans, and then which are risky is uncertain about risky. whether they're going to work out. And then you're also holding the uh, the rest of it, the twenty million, just in cash. That's so a, your bank's assets are eighty million in loans, what people owe you, yeah. plus twenty million in cash. And on the other side, the liability side, you have ninety million of deposits and ten million that is claims to that are owed to your stockholders. That is, they they have what are called the residual claim. Whatever you Get after you pay off your depositors, your ninety million depositors will stay with your stockholders. So just now, let's let's talk about shock absorber and why how we think about capital as a shock absorber. 
perfectly analogously to your mortgage example that you gave a minute ago, if the value of those risky loans, suppose that, you know, I've got 80 million of, of loans outstanding, but suppose that Some other 10 default. million, yeah, 10 million decide not to pay me back and they go bust and I can't get anything back from those. It's a complete loss on 10 million of my loans. Well, what just happened? Well, I have enough left in assets. I still have 70 million of good loans. I have 20 million of cash. That's 90 million. It's just enough to pay off all my depositors. The reason is because capital was an adequate buffer. Capital was adequate to absorb the losses coming from those risky assets. And so in that situation, I had enough capital. But I I just want to give one quick uh, addendum to this. Suppose that the losses had been greater. Suppose the losses had been yeah. Instead of only losing 10, suppose I lost 20. Well, those FDIC-insured deposits are still going to get their money. Right. So where does the other <laughs> $10 million come from? Now this bank has what we call a negative net worth of negative $10 million. Well, that's going to come from the U.S. taxpayers. So the reason from a regulatory standpoint that we care so much about capital adequacy is because we care about making sure that the people running the bank for their own profit and pleasure are, that is, the stockholders who control the bank, who control management, and are supposed to be responsible for what's going on. They get the benefit of the profit, but we also make sure that they are responsible for dealing with the downside. When the downside occurs, they're the ones who lose, not the U.S. taxpayers. So we'll talk later about how that might work in the absence of an FDIC guarantee because that would change the incentives of both the depositors who under the current law only exactly. have to worry about the solvency of the U.S. government. Exactly. The and, depositors, exactly. That's a very important point that, that the, uh, the bankers are, are going to behave differently if they're insured or they're not insured. And the reason that we really need to worry about this from a regulatory standpoint is – because the government now is the one who's really standing to lose. The depositors you and, are The you and I, <laughs> not yeah, the government. Yeah. All, of, right, all of us are. But the point is the depositors, as depositors, are protected. Now, the same people as, as taxpayers may be bearing some of the cost of what, you know, the uh, protection of the bank. But as depositors, they're protected. And that means, as you are just saying, they don't really have much incentive to be worrying about their bank. Whereas in the olden days, before we had protection of the bank depositors, bank depositors were really being very attentive to what was going on in banks and were making sure that the banks were worried. And as I like to say, if the depositors aren't worried, the bankers aren't scared. Yeah, and of course, the moral hazard problem is that if you know that your depositors aren't worried, then you're not scared. You can offer them a lot of money in you you can risk a higher rate of interest to offer them mm-hmm. because if you can't pay it off, they'll get their money back anyway. So exactly, you can attract people if you pay a little bit above the risk free uh, interest rate that people earn on other things, and you, and they know that there's no risk. You're going to attract money like gangbusters, right? You pay giving some someone even you know a quarter of a percentage point more than they can earn elsewhere with no additional risk, you're going to get a lot of money. And that is exactly the thing we worry about. And so, you know, we we have to make sure in a regulatory system where we protect bank deposits and other bank debts, 
that banks are adequately capitalized. And when we do that, not only do we protect sort of after the fact by, by absorbing losses, but the most important thing, which you were hinting at already, is that we affect the banker's incentives toward risk. And so capital, as a shock absorber, isn't just there to protect us against bad luck. It's also there through protecting against bad luck. It's there to change the incentives of bankers toward risk. Yeah, it's to, it's to protect us from imprudence and, and recklessness. Absolutely. And fraud. We recently had William Black on talking about fraud, and, mm-hmm. and I'm uh, – I understand the incentives for fraud. I think there's a – an interaction there between the fraud and the moral hazard that maybe we'll get to. But I, I want to go back to the example just to make sure I understand it because uh, I'm a little bit confused. I'm a, I open a bank, and for some reason I'm a credible uh, uh, person to invest with. You depositors give me $90 million. Mm-hmm. I get another $10 million from people who I convince that this is a good investment. They are going to share in any profits to the bank with me. Right. I take the I take the hundred million. I make eighty million dollars worth of loans, and I keep twenty million off to the side in cash, which is a bummer because it's not earning very much money. It's not earning as much as the loans are. So there's a natural temptation to make that cushion of twenty million smaller. But the smaller I make it, the less likely people are in the absence of secure uh, insurance. In the abs- in the absence of deposit insurance, people are going to get nervous. For the same reason these regu- the regulators get nervous when there is deposit insurance that there's not a cushion. So in that story, when I have $80 million in loans and $20 million in cash and I have $90 million in deposits and $10 million in equity, what's my leverage? What is my capital ratio in that story? Well, um, if you define your capital ratio or leverage ratio as the book value or of your equity – book value of your capital relative to the book value of your total assets, so let's call it equity over assets, it's 10%. So I'm leveraged 9 to 1. Yes. Correct? That would be the, the lingo. Yeah, you could say it that way. Debt to, to, le- to equity is 9 to 1. What I'm confused about is that in that story, usually when we talk about leverage, the, the 1, the, the part that's capital – uh, the one dollar out of every ten in that story, and when we just created, that's my cushion. But it looks like the twenty million of cash is the cushion. Why is the equity the cushion? Oh, I'm so glad you said that. I, I have a lot of articles I'm writing about exactly this point. <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah, because notice that what's really protecting the taxpayers is a combination of the cash on the left hand side, the asset side, and the capital. On the right-hand side, and we bankers have always understood this: that prudential regulation, Russ, didn't used to be about capital ratios. It used to be about cash ratios. And what's really funny is that starting in the 1980s, the shift was to focus on the capital ratios as the thing that's making people behave honestly and protecting against loss, buffering against losses. But the main focus used to be on cash. And my view is we have to think with both sides of our brain here, and it's really the combination of cash and capital that matters. And let me go through an example just to, to clarify that. Let's stay with our example. We have a bank. It's got $80 million in loans and it's $20 million in cash on the asset side. 
It's financing that. It's getting its money from 90 million of depositors and 10 million contributed by stockholders. So the 90 million contributed by depositors, 10 million of stockholders went toward lending 80 million and keeping 20 million in cash. Now, if we think about risk on risky assets as a possibility of a percentage loss, yeah, that's what. I, that's why I'm getting confused. Yeah, oh, go ahead. They, Good. <laughs> I, prom, I promise you, you won't get confused. I'm going to do two. Give you two alternative versions, and you'll see see how it differs. So we think about. Suppose you give a ten percent loss. That would so, be. That would be. Let me try to do this. Yeah. Let me be the student. So I had eighty million right in in loans I was expecting, but it turns out ten percent of them turn out to be bad. So I only collect seventy two. Is that what you want me to do? Exactly. Okay. So you you only collect seventy two. Notice that now you've got take that seventy two, add it with the twenty in cash because cash can't fall in value. Correct. Well, so, it can, but, but well, but not not not, not in nominal, not nominal, in nominal value. value. <laughs> not in not in its cash value. Yeah. So you got seventy two worth of loans because you lost ten percent of them. Right. Plus your cash. Now you got ninety two. How much debt do you have? Uh, how much deposits do you have to pay? 90. Ninety. So I'm okay. So you're okay. Now let's do a different and, version. And and more importantly, if there were a run on the bank, if for some reason people were anxious about their deposits and they all showed up at the same time, which never happens unless there's this weird psychological anxiety uh, that 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 spreads throughout the, the the group of depositors, they could all get their money back. There'd be no. Uh, uh, it's a wonderful life scene where where poor Jimmy Stewart's trying to talk him into taking a less than they want. Because that's that's what we all understand. That well, let's let's slow down on that, Russ, because okay. that's not exactly. I mean, I kind of I do agree with you, but how I get to agree with you is is pretty complicated. Because okay. notice we've got ninety million in deposits, and we have uh, only twenty million in cash. So if all ninety came back and asked for their money, we wouldn't have enough cash to pay them. And then we'd have to start selling our loans. Oh, right. Sorry, because all the loans don't pay off at the same time. And, and the Never, problem bad, might be bad example. You're yeah. Right. Sorry. And the problem might be we wouldn't be we might not be able to realize in the secondary market. Yeah, yeah. The full value on our loans, and so, but I, I do still agree with you though. And here's what I here's what we know from empirical evidence of hundreds of years of history: people don't come and randomly ask for their money back all at once. <laughs> which isn't surprising, right? Yeah. What they L- do large is numbers for one they, thing. they come back when they're worried about the default risk yes. of the bank. So if the bank isn't at risk of defaulting on depositors, they don't tend to run and ask for all their money back. And so I would actually say that it is true that if we had the example we just went through, the possibility of that 10% loss on the 80 of loans so we go down to 72 million of loans because we get a 10% loss on 80 million. Add to that the 20 million in cash we were holding. We still have 92 million, and we have more than enough to pay off our, our deposits. The depositors know that we have more than enough. There's no reason for them to run. We're solvent. Is the we're correct. solvent. But now let's look at a different version. Yeah. We raised nine, the same 90 million from our depositors. We raised the same 10 million from our stockholders. But now we lend all of it out. No cash. We we lend all of it out in in and in loans, and now we get a ten percent decline. Well, the ten percent decline is means that the loans fall to ninety in value. Now yes. we're still solvent. We have zero net worth, but you could say we still have just enough on the cusp. Yeah. yeah, or on the cusp. Now, if I if we had constructed this example though with eleven percent decline, let's go back to our two cases. 
We started in the one with 80 million in loans and 20 million in cash. Well, an 11% decline, we have a, a loss of about nine. So we're still solvent. But if we had, instead of 80 million in loans and 20 in cash, if we had 100 million in loans, 11% decline, so, means we lose 11, now we're insolvent. So what did we just learn? Well, insolvent just, meaning that, that if our, depo- my, our depositors realize this, they'll realize that there is not enough right. liquidity to satisfy our demands in total, and it wouldn't be a bad idea to run to the bank. <laughs> Better run to the bank because the last one in the line isn't going to get their, their money. And that's, so what, what happens then is what, what this logic shows, which people have known in banking pretty much forever. Forever, yeah is that really there are two ways to skin the cat. The, the, the cat we're trying to skin here is to prevent risks that are arising on the asset side from leading to insolvency of the bank. And there are two ways to mitigate against those risks. One of them is by holding a higher proportion of cash on your asset side, and the other is by financing yourself with a higher proportion of equity or capital on your liability side. And that those are two different ways to skin the cat. Meaning, if you tell me a level of risk of, of insolvency for the bank that you want to achieve, meaning give me a certain probability of insolvency, I can get to that probability with a combination with a, you know, of a lot of cash and a little bit of capital or a lot of capital and a little bit of cash. I can get to the same result in terms of insolvency with different combinations of cash and capital. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing this so much is this is what I've been writing a lot about lately, is that we need to think about cash requirements, not just capital requirements in our prudential regulation, and we need to think about them from the perspective of reducing default risk in banks. And so I just gave you an example of how you know cash and capital can both work. But one thing I would say, and I don't want to you know, belabor the point too much, but I want to make one important point. There really is, um, in, a, in a model where we can see these losses, in a world where when a bank suffers a loss, everything's observable. It's transparent. It's all transparent. And there's not much of a difference between using cash and using capital to solve the problem. Correct, because you can, it's the, it really is the same thing. It, it, it's, well, they're similar. They're not the same. One is, is solving the problem with holding cash. The other, but by raising more percentage of your funds from capital. Here's where they get completely different, Russ. Yep. Suppose that, that you can't observe mm-hmm. the loan losses. And suppose... Or the bank can, but the outsiders can't. Exactly. The, the bank knows that this region knows. where they've made a disproportionate share of their loans has got some unemployment, and it looks like there's going to be a higher default rate than they anticipated. Exactly. And now let's add a lo- another wrinkle to it. <clears throat> Even though the supervisors and regulators, uh, the government supervisors and regulators, they might be able to observe them. Because they're, they're, they're monitoring they, the books every once in a while. They, they do. Yeah, they are monitoring the books, but they have strong incentives to do something called forbearance. Yeah, very important. Okay, so by the way, whenever you hear three syllable words in finance, they typically are synonymous with lie. <laughs> so you'll hear about how um, banks are evergreening uh-huh. and regulators are forbearing. Whenever you hear words like that, first of all, evergreen, it invokes this beautiful forest, right? And And forbearance is a biblical concept. It's God's, you know, patience with us, his condescension for us, right? But so it, it makes you think something noble is happening. All that's happening is a conspiracy of lying 
not to recognize loan losses. Why? Because the bankers don't want to recognize them. That might that might require them to raise more capital or go out of business or something. And the regulators don't want to recognize them because it's politically extremely inconvenient for their bosses. And so what you end up with is the taxpayers, if you just rely entirely on capital requirements, notice that capital, in our example, when the, the loss occurs, it only shows up in the the bookkeeping when you recognize the loss. So a bank could be, let's, let's go back to our example. You've got 80 million in loans, 20 million in cash. The loans fall in value by 10%. But if you don't recognize the decline in value. Recognize meaning on the books. Yeah. You, you pretend it didn't happen. Then your books still show that you have 10%. 10 million in capital, right? 10%. They, yeah, they still show a capital ratio of 10%. That doesn't mean that's real. It just means that's what the accounts show. And and one thing that's really interesting about cash is, so what, what we just showed is that capital is an accounting fiction. Capital can be manipulated by banks and their supervisors and regulators to political purposes to mask losses when it suits both of their interests, which is almost always. It You know, during crises, they want to mask their losses. Well, they want to push off because they want to, they want to, you talked about the political pressure. Yes. You know, there's always going to be uh, – it's it's sort of like um, when you borrow money from the guy on the corner and he comes to collect and you say, I need another week. He can, might hit your knees you know, with the baseball bat, but you know, he might he might let you go for a week. He's usually uh, – you're going to plead for it, right? Mm-hmm. And he's got an incentive sometimes. Well, it's a bad example of a guy with the baseball bat because he breaks your knees. But the, but the regulator might say, well, you know, if I put it off a month – or six months, or quarter, whatever it is, it'll maybe turn out fine. Maybe the assets will re-increase in value, and then this whole thing will blow over. There's no yes, reason to make it a stay. You know, that we, there's an old principle in banking, which is the one thing you never do with a, a borrower, and in this case, the banks are borrowers, in the sense, from the taxpayers. The one thing you never do is just give someone more time. <laughs> yeah. You might want to give them more time, with some additional restrictions, yeah. with a plan of action, right. with some recognition that there is a problem. But you never want to give somebody who's in a losing situation more time because what they do with more time when they're already underwater, they take big risks. Because they have no downside. Because they have no downside. And so this whole forbearance evergreening thing is, is the, really the reason why Small losses turn into big losses in banking. Systems. So we need we need to go into a little bit more into the forbearance. So let's take go back to our regular exa- our example yes. we're working with. Uh, let's say there's a um, a ten percent capital requirement, and I'm I'm doing fine. I'm meeting that requirement. Now all of a sudden, a bunch of my loans turn bad. Ten percent. Uh, I think I want to conclude that my capital requirements aren't being satisfied. I need to do something. Is that correct? Yeah. And the forbearance is going to be, well, you don't have to yet. We'll give you a little more chance. Exactly. We'll give you more time. Let, let's, let's make it really interesting, though, Russ, because we've been very too, too, too conservative in our thinking here. Let's let the value of the loans fall 20%. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So now we, we have a um, – our loans went from 80. They fell by 16. That's 20%. Right? So now our, our loans are – 64. 64 plus our 20 in cash. We've got 84, and we have 90 in uh, deposits. Our capital ratio is right now really 
um, negative, what, what would you describe it as? I guess I would call it, um, we have a total of 84, but we've got 100 in, in debt, so we've got negative 16, I guess, right? Okay. Uh, did I get that wrong? Let's let's slow down a little. We had a 20% loss in our loans, so our loans fell by 16, so they're still worth um, 64. 64 plus 20 of cash, so my total assets are worth 84. I have 90, uh, that's what it is, I have 90 in deposits, so I have a negative 6. Okay. I have negative 6 in, in net worth. I'm insolvent to the tune of negative Correct. 6. And so... If I had to recognize those losses, the regulator would tell me, you're insolvent. You have to go to your stockholders and raise more capital. Go to the market, find a way to raise more capital. Try to convince people that you're worth saving, and they'll have them cough up some capital. Um, and in that case, how much would I need? To, I'm having some trouble with my balance sheet. Well, if sheet. my requirement, suppose that Let's my capital 10%. requirement is, uh, we have to, you know, just we're being arbitrary, so let's continue with that. Suppose that we have a requirement that says we have to raise 8% of our non-cash assets as capital. Okay. That would mean that you would have to raise on, on your book value of assets, which are 80 non-cash assets. 84. Oh, uh, still you, my non-cash assets are 64. Well, not on a market value basis because we're on a book value basis about what your – remember, you have to have capital adequacy to make sure your deposits are paid. So I'm trying to – you know, keep this on a, a real regulatory basis. Okay, so if you have risk assets of 80 and you have an 8% um, capital requirement against your non-cash assets, that means you have to have 8% of 80, which is, um, help me out here. 6.4. But- 6.4. And so what the regulatory capital would say, well, you know, against your uh, risky assets, you have to have uh, 6.4, not negative 6. So you better go to the capital markets and raise $12 of new equity. That might not be easy to do if you're insolvent, but the point is that's, that's what you'd have to do if the regulator were doing his job. He would require you not just to get back to a point of zero, but to get back to a point where you had relative to your, your I had the assets. Cushion. I had yeah. the cushion back. Right, where you'd get that cushion back. And the cushion is defined in some minimal sense to make sure that going forward, so now we've, we've lost our money, you've got to have raise enough capital to replace the losses and to have enough going forward that, that we're not so concerned about future losses wiping out your bank. Even, for, even, even right. bigger future losses than we've already incurred. But exactly. let's take a real-world example uh, of okay. this because and, and, that – that example, I got lost. Um, so I'm going to take a, a a less numerical example and try to figure out uh, how it would apply. So in uh, March of 2008, when when Bear Stearns was in trouble, uh, one of the things that happened was that people became aware that some of the assets that every investment bank was holding uh, were not as valuable as they had thought before. Mm-hmm. That the default risk within the mortgage-backed securities that were on the books of those uh, institutions were worth less than before, right. and that is the equivalent. That's the an- analogous to the uh, the defaults in the deposit in the loans. Excuse me, that we just talked about with the Vanilla Bank. Yes, it is. It's, so it's a decline in in uh, value that's understood in the market. So Lehman, watching this happen, 
and watching that uh, all the creditors of uh, Bear Stearns got their money back uh, was not as interested in dealing with that uh, recognition of of the new marketplace as they would be in a world where the government had not helped uh, Bear Stearns creditors because when the government helped Bear Stearns creditors, it said to Lehman's creditors, well, you know, keep lending to them. It's going to be okay. Whereas- well, it said, it said even – I mean, think about this for a minute. Initially, the deal was that not only were Bear Stearns creditors bailed out, the initial deal was Bear Stearns stockholders yeah. got $2 a share initially. And then that deal got renegotiated up to, to $10, $10 a Correct. share. So, Russ, not only were the creditors bailed out of Bear Stearns, but the stockholders were too. We should have been wiped out totally. And so, the, you know, the real issue there is Merrill Lynch and, and Lehman and some other institutions, but those City. are the two most obvious examples. In the spring and summer of 2008, they had six months to go out and raise new capital. But let's look at it. I can tell you, I won't say the name of the person, but I had breakfast with a prominent person in one of those banks. And I asked him, what, you know, hey, you, you need to go out. You know, the market now knows that you've got declined, declined asset values. You need to go out and raise some more equity. And I said, there's lots of people out there who want to buy your equity. He said, yeah, the problem is they don't want to pay the price we want. <laughs> we don't like the price. Yeah, funny how that works. And, and so here's the thing. If you're protected on the downside, you look at Bear Stearns and you say, well, the Bear Stearns stockholders got $10 a share from Uncle Sam. Well, instead sort of, of instead sort of, of selling yeah. instead of selling my equity cheap for let's say twelve dollars a share into the market, why don't I wait? Hope that the market conditions improve, in which case I don't have to sell equity cheap and dilute myself. And on the downside, if something goes wrong, I'll I'll get my ten dollars a share just like Bear Stearns. Yeah. And so the problem was it wasn't even just that the creditors were protected. It was that the stockholders were actually receiving at Bear Stearns $10 a share. Okay, but the part I, I want to make sure I, I understand the range of actions that, that the bank could take. Uh, so when we use the phrase raise more equity, what we mean is issue shares in the stock, additional shares. That's why you're talking about dilution, offering a, a new stock option to raise capital, raise equity to build the cushion against future uh, right. realizations of, of losses in asset value. Now, the alternative is to sell assets and convert them to cash. Well, there's more than Correct. one alternative. Give me some of the, give me yeah. some of the things so that There's some other alternatives, but let's go through them one at a time. And the reason I mentioned the equity is not being the only one is, that, as you point out, not only does it dilute the existing shareholders, which the executives are not too keen on because they, they own a lot. Uh, as you say in that breakfast conversation, well, when people see that, Things aren't going so well. They're not so excited to to invest in the company. They, right. They're willing to do it if you give them a low enough price because they're willing to buy a lottery ticket. But it's not so exciting. Well, and, and the, the part of the thing is that outside equity investors don't know as much about your assets as you do. And so when you go to the market and say, "I want you to have the opportunity, Russ. I want you to have the opportunity of owning an interest in my company." You say, well, is that because you're generous? There's this great upside that you're generous about, or is that because you happen to know yeah. that there's about to be an announcement of a problem right after I make my contribution of investing in the equity? And then I, you, Russ, as the new investor, 
take a ride with me on the downside. So when you're in the middle of a financial crisis and you're dealing with banks whose assets are very hard for outsiders to know as much about as the bankers themselves who made them, then it's, you have a, a little bit of a, a challenge, but it's not an insurmountable challenge, but it's still a challenge to convince people that you're really uh, worth investing in. And what that means is that you'll tend to spend a lot of money investment bank uh, on your investment bank doing do, the roadshow and make, taking everybody through the due diligence, and you're going to also have to offer things at a little bit of a discount. That's right. called dilution. In order to encourage people who are already suspicious, you know, as Groucho Marx said, Right. He wouldn't want to belong to any club that would want to have you as a member. Yep. <laughs> well, at least he did. Have him as a and, member. Excuse me. <laughs> and, and, and it's the same thing with a stock. You know, if a company is desperately eager to sell you stock, you're a little bit concerned about what you might be buying. Where's the hidden problem? It could be that they have this great opportunity. They're excited to use the cash for that, but that's only right. one possibility. So let's get to the other. Ah, but notice that the other one has exactly the, the one you mentioned has exactly the same problem. If you if you do this, get back to a higher capital ratio by getting rid of your assets and your debt. Okay, so let's let's go to our bank example. Suppose that we have this. Um, let's be very specific here. We have eighty million in loans, twenty million in cash, and we have uh, a six percent capital requirement. Against our, Six. Was, I'm, was I'm sorry, eight percent yeah. against our non-cash. Non-cash. So that means we have to hold at least six point four in capital, right? And then we've got so we're fine because we we've got 10. ten in capital yeah. right now, and we've got ninety in deposits. But then <clears throat> we start being concerned because we see some losses in our loans. Now, one way that we could deal with this is to sell off some of our good loans. And then use the proceeds from the sale of those good loans to pay off some of our depositors. And that would increase our equity ratio through what's called deleveraging, which is it's not that you raised new equity. You just sold off some of your assets and used the proceeds to retire some of your debt. That's called deleveraging. And that would be another way to get back to a higher equity ratio but without issuing new equity. Instead, you do it by deleveraging. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, the problem, though, is... There's a problem, I know, yeah. You've got to sell those loans. And if there's that same information problem that I mentioned before, where the potential owners of uh, buyers of new equity aren't so sure about the value of your, your assets, well, then if you actually tried to sell those assets into the market, people aren't going to be so sure about their value either. Or they could just it could it could be I think more realistically we know they're lower because market conditions have changed and that's what why we have a problem. But you know what what normally happens in this circumstance is that when if there's a, this troubled group of assets because it's so hard to value them accurately, people when they're buying those assets they also want a discount. Yeah, oh, I understand. It's the same and, problem. Then sometimes that's called a fire sale discount. Yeah. And then, so what it's do you not do zero, instead? But it's not zero. It's not like oh, you, it's not you can't. Zero. People sometimes say, "Well, and you can't sell them." Well, you but can. But you have other choices. I want to go through your other choices because those are going to be the ones that you're going to like better. Bring them on. Okay. Next choice is instead of selling off these questionable assets that have fallen in value in order to realize uh, to to get your your deleveraging going, you have another way to deleverage. I'm your good customer. I've got a line of credit. Uh, I, I'm your good loan customer. You're the guy running the bank. And uh, my line of credit comes up for renewal. 
and you just say, I want you to pay off your loan. In, instead of rolling it over. Exactly. You just say, hey, pay it off. I say, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm an innocent victim here. You say, yep, you're an innocent victim of my capital requirements. That's called a credit crunch. When the bank suffers a loss in one class of assets and it has to meet its capital requirements, if they're, you know, if we don't have evergreening and forbearance, if it has to meet its capital requirements, often it has the path of least resistance is instead of going to the market to raise new equity, instead of trying to sell off your dodgy uh, assets in, in some sort of secondary market, which is going to be very hard, what you do is you just don't roll over your good loans. Or another way to say it, which we find over and over again, is when people have to sell off assets, they often sell off the higher quality assets because those are the ones that are easy to sell. Right, yeah. And that's just like deciding not to renew your good loan risks. Yeah. And so the, the, you know, there really are innocent victims out there. You know, when the, the Russian crisis hit in 1998, Brazilian sovereign debts fell a lot in value because the firms, the, the hedge funds that were holding both had to meet their debt uh, calls to the banks that said, hey, you've just had some losses. You have to cut your debt. You have to deleverage. Well, the banks deleveraged. How did they do it? They couldn't sell the Russian debts. No one wanted it. Well, Nobody they wanted, wanted to get it, into that. It, it's too cheap. So what did you sell? You sold the Brazilian debts, and then the Brazilians are saying, hey, what, what, what's going on here? You know, what did we do? And right. the answer is, you didn't do anything except the people holding your debts happened to need to sell stuff massively. And so similarly, in a credit crunch, it's often, you know, the, the innocent victims who wonder, you know, what happened, uh, why are their debts being contra- uh, sold, uh, or, or why are their loans not being rolled over? And yet, that's exactly what economic theory would tell you to expect, because that's the path of least resistance. So do you have any other options for me? Yeah, That's three. Give me some more. So now the next option is, suppose that we define capital. Remember, capital is a, is a shock absorber, but capital doesn't have to necessarily be equity. It doesn't have to be stock. So we can imagine capital being a debt instrument that converts into stock. And that where the idea here is that it might be that this dilution problem we talked about, that is how if you tried to sell stock into the market, it's going to be very difficult, that that problem isn't going to be as great if you're trying to sell something called uh, convertible debt. And so part of capital under the Basel capital requirements and a lot of capital requirement uh, systems Part of capital is convertible debt, and we have uh, one particular version which regulators are talking about, and I'm proposing specific, a specific version of it as part of the capital requirement called contingent capital certificates, or COCOs for short. And the idea of this is that it might be that since you're more protected on the downside, but not you're you're not protected, but you're a little bit more protected. Who's per, you know, if you're the cocoa holder, you still have the equity holders in the bank who are junior to you. So now you have sort of think of it like a waterfall, where in the waterfall you've got you know the the, the depositors of the bank are the most senior claimants. They get the money first, whatever money there is to be had. Next are the cocoa holders. And then finally, if there's any money left over, the equity holders. So cocos are in between right. 
promises like depositors and equity holders. I, but I don't understand how they work yet, so try again. Okay, so the, the idea here is that if you tell banks, you can satisfy some of your capital requirements with uh, not just with equity, but also with these COCOs, that that might be helpful for banks in mitigating the costs, reducing the costs of raising capital in the market when they need to. And that's uh, one of the main advantages of convertible debts. But, of course, we have this, this is a very complicated topic to, you know, we're now in pretty complicated finance theory about how to structure balance sheets in the optimal way. But the key thing that I want get, to get at this point is just one idea, which is, and we've known this in corporate finance a lot, which is a lot of different studies talking about it, that if, if you are issuing into the market when in a, at a bad time for you, for your business, if you issue convertible debts, that is debts to convert to equity, you will not have the same kinds of dilution problems for your shareholders that if you were issuing shares into the market. Because there's some uncertainty about whether it'll convert or not? Is that why? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. There, you're, you're asking people, you're not asking someone, remember the Groucho Marx point, we're not asking, I'm not asking you to become a stockholder like me. I'm asking you to be um, somebody who is senior to me. I'm the stockholder, and I want you to give me money, but you're still in line ahead of me. So it's basic. It's it's not it's not dilution, but it's semi dilution. Right. It's basically it's, saying mm-hmm. you still have the same claims on the company, but there's a chance that you might not get exactly what you exactly. Expected. You're at risk, but you are less at risk than if you bought stock. And I suppose I'm the existing stockholder, and I have a little bit of a loss. And I come to you and I say, Russ, you know, remember we were talking on your program about. This idea, well, you know, uh, what do you think? Uh, I'm the stockholder, and I, I don't want to sell stock because I really have confidence in my firm. But I'm going to give you special protection. That is, I'm standing between you and any losses. I'm the stockholder. All losses come out of my pocket before you lose a dime. Yeah. I lose everything before you lose a dime, Russ. Yeah. And I want you to cough up some contingent capital, some some convertible debts, and... Yes, Russ, there's a chance you're going to lose money, but here's what I promise you. You won't lose a time until I've lost everything. Okay, so that's interesting, but I, I think – and as you say, it's a little bit arcane, and I'm, I'm just going to make an aside here. We're about uh, we're about 46 minutes into this podcast, and I'm enjoying every minute of it. Those of you out there who've listened this far, uh, I don't know how much you enjoy hearing these kind of uh, – what I call sort of the basics kind of a podcast where we delve into uh, – these fundamentals to help people understand stuff. If, if you like this, let me know, mail at econtalk.org. If you've listened this far, maybe you turned it off uh, 10 minutes ago. You're like, oh, not another podcast about the financial crisis, bookkeeping issues. So uh, let, let me hear from you if you like this or if you're a dutiful listener and you, and you don't like it, but you're still listening, you can let me know too. But l- I think there's two things I need to I need to figure out. We're really close. From, I'm learning something really important here. I hope others are too. So here's the two things I'm, I'd like to get to. and and others if we have time, they are the following. What is the natural incentive of the bank to leverage that makes it necessary for the regulatory uh, folks to make these requirements? That's the first question. Mm -hmm. Then the second question, which is much harder for me because I'm very confused about it, is when we're not in a world of depositors – 
which is the investment bank world. We're not in the vanilla bank, American FDIC insured stuff, but we're in this more complicated, shadowy bank world. I want to figure out how the story changes, if at all. So those are my two topics I want to get to. So let's start with the first one. Okay. Let's say there's no regulatory requirements, none. There's no FDIC. Uh, I'm a bank. I want to attract deposits, and I want to uh, invest those deposits in loans and other things, houses, other all kinds of assets potentially. And to do that, I've got to make sure that you as the depositor feel comfortable with what I'm doing. So one way, and there are many ways, but one way I can do that is to set aside a cushion. The cushion mm-hmm. we've talked about could be two cushions, equity or cash. Now, what we do know, even if you don't understand any of what we've been talking about so far, is that banks like leverage. So why is there natural incentive to exploit the FDIC guarantee? What's going on that makes uh, leverage so attractive for them? Well, it used to be before FDIC that when the banker borrowed money from depositors, depositors knew that they were at risk of losing it. And that meant that depositors were worried, which made bankers scared which meant that bankers, how did the bankers convince depositors not to be worried? They held enough equity on their liability side, and they held enough cash on their asset side. And in fact, especially during crises, because it can be hard to really be confident about the bank's bookkeeping on capital, the way banks really restored confidence was they accumulated cash. Because if you're accumulating a lot of cash, depositors know that there's going to be cash there. There's Let not, me give you an idea some, of how dramatic it was. There's not uncertainty about the value of the asset. Exactly. Here, here's how dramatic it was. In 1929, New York City banks, on their asset side, were holding about one quarter of their assets in cash assets. That's treasury bills and, and cash at the Fed. By the end of the 30s, they were holding three quarters of their assets in cash. Those banks didn't fail. Those banks didn't experience runs even in uh, the New York City banks in the 1930s. What they did experience was a lot of depositor concern. And as they felt that concern in the form of some withdrawal pressures, they felt very strong pressures to reassure depositors. They cut their dividends so that they could try to boost their capital ratios. And they raised their cash ratios dramatically from 25% up to 75%. And that's how they stayed in business. Now, that's the old days when you worried, that when depositors worried and bankers were scared. Once you have FDIC insurance, the depositors Never worried. aren't worried. Well, if the depositors aren't worried, then the banker's thinking, well, you know, whatever I do, even if I hold very little capital and very little cash, I still only have to pay a very low interest rate on those deposits. Now, imagine if I told you that when that most corporations in the world If they increase their leverage, they have to pay more to their debts. You're talking about a regular, quote, company, not a financial institution. Or a bank prior to FDIC insurance. If you increase leverage, all of a sudden, people start asking for a substantial amount more money for their debts, and that discourages you. Just as the banks I talked about in the 20s and 30s, they were encouraged by markets to keep their leverage appropriate and to keep their cash appropriate. Notice, we don't have capital requirements for non-bank, non-financial companies. We don't need to. Microsoft. Yeah, Microsoft doesn't need a capital requirement or cash requirement. They are rewarded in the market for having adequate capital and adequate cash because if they 
go off of capital adequacy, the markets will penalize them. They'll have to pay a lot more for their debt. Their stock prices will fall. Everybody will say, what's going on at Microsoft? But, but if bankers, once they're insured, when they increase their leverage, they don't have to pay higher costs of debt. And so that's called the moral hazard problem. That's a temptation because you actually can show that bankers will increase their profits by leveraging more because their deposits are protected. So that bankers face a strong incentive to increase leverage that just comes from the fact that the normal effect of increasing leverage and raising your cost of funding doesn't apply when your funding is insured. Yeah, okay. So, that, so that's that. why that's we good. need capital requirements. We need we need capital ratio requirements and cash ratio requirements both. If Well, we say you need them. We need them if we're going to have insurance if we exactly. don't have, I, my alternative would be to get rid of the insurance but that's let's well i've written quite a bit about that topic and it, it might we'll make put some sense. links up to, we'll put some links up to those papers yeah well it's it's uh there there's i, I think a very good uh, economic argument for doing that um i would also just you know remind everyone that uh the person who passed deposit insurance the person who was president when it was passed franklin roosevelt was against it. Yeah, he had been against it. The Republicans pushed it through. It, it was it. actually yeah. it was Henry Stiegel of Alabama who really pushed it through. And the reason they pushed it through was because they wanted to subsidize the small banks that were uh, at risk. And so it was small banks in mainly rural areas that had a huge amount of political interest in pushing it through. And it was there was log rolling done in, in the Banking Act of 1933 that it made this happen. And, you know, it's a, there's a long political history of this, you know, going, you know, beyond that, but I don't want to get into it except to say, I've come to the conclusion that politically, Russ, getting rid of deposit insurance doesn't solve our problems in the U.S. Because you we don't... Any, you have it anyway. It's because hard for people right, to say no. we, we have a political problem, and the, the problem in the new book that Steve Haber and I are writing called Fragile Banks, Unlikely Partners... Why banking's all about politics and always has been. We're talking about this problem, and basically the problem is that you have a political coalition in the U.S., which is a, a very unlikely one between big bankers and w- what we call urban populists. And what this means is that the kinds of subsidies for risk taking that occur to the benefit of the big banks and to the benefit of um, affordable housing policy and other kinds of policies are very much there on purpose to satisfy certain political constituencies. And, you know, ultimately, deposit insurance and bank regulation are, you know, the phenomena that are, you know, you might think that you're going to control the world with them, but they really just are outcomes of deep political processes. So I'm not even sure that we are at a point where making changes in deposit insurance coverage are credible. I don't even think... Yeah, we I agree can, with you. And that's the problem. Well, let's so, let's move know. on. Let's move on. And by the way, look forward to talking to you about that book down the road. But let's talk about... I want, we're very close for me actually understanding this, so I don't want to miss the, the opportunity. Okay. So let's move from an FDIC-insured bank that takes deposits from uh, people who have savings accounts. They use that money to then fund loans that's the model we've been talking about. Let's move to an investment bank, mm-hmm. which I have uh, – I'm confused about two things that you're going to help me understand. One is, w- did they have capital requirements like a regular bank? And yes, they did. The second question would – because they are on paper leveraged much more highly uh, than than the 
so-called vanilla banks. Mm. And the second question, and this is the one I'm really interested in. I'm interested in the first one too. But the second question that I'm really interested in is uh, who's funding the leverage if it's not depositors? So let's let's start with the first question, which is just the regulatory environment that, say, right. uh, Lehman or Bear or Morgan okay. Stanley is in. Yeah, easy to answer all these questions. So the, the first uh, question you asked is, were the investment banks subject to capital requirements yep. like the commercial banks? And the answer is yes. So starting in 2002, in response to European complaints that American investment banks were not regulated under the Basel system, uh, the United States imposed the Basel system on the investment banks. Now, the Basel system thinks about capital requirements using something called a risk-based capital system risk -based, yeah. that measures risk-weighted assets right. and imposed, a under Basel I and Basel II, an 8% capital requirement on a risk-weighted basis. So, for example, just in our little example we've been using, if you had $80 million in risky assets with rates of with with some um, risk weights of one meaning they're considered to be uh average risk of a particular yeah, yeah let's call it average risk weight um then your capital requirement would be 8% of that 80 because it would be 8% of risk weight 1 multiplied by 80 but if and it's triple a if it's a really safe asset exactly. then you could go to what? what very low so you know notice that the uh, under the Basel 2 system some of these investment banks had capital ratios of three percent. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, but but their capital ratios on a risk weighted basis were still above eight percent. You see, because the risk weights were very low; they were less than one. Now, where do those risk weights come from, Russ? Where do you? If I, if I told a ten-year-old child this, <laughs> they know. wouldn't believe me. I know they come from the banks. I know the banks made them up. Yeah, and the regulators said, "Well, your models look pretty good to me." <laughs> So where we where we got funny on this was so the safe stuff is then mortgages because we know the housing prices how are always could safe. those go down in and value debt from Greece because <laughs> Greece is a exactly. country no sovereign we all know that sovereign debt is almost riskless if right? it's if it's European and Greek is in Europe Greece is in Europe <laughs> so actually this uh, these are really important issues nowadays but exactly so remember risk weights are a regulatory therefore a political concept. They are determined in practice by the bank's own models or by ratings agencies' opinions. Which is, which by the way, is really just a fancy version of forbearance, right? It's a way Absolutely. of... It's, well, it's it can, it's, unless there's something credible about the way that's done. Now, there are some ideas I've been writing about, ideas of ways to try to make risk measurement more credible, but let's just not go off on tangents, so let's stay with your question. Yes, it's... it's um, they're not very credible, and so the problem is that uh, capital, real capital relative to total assets, can get very small. Now, so notice, now, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, notice that the banks in the U.S., commercial banks, had an additional requirement. Over and above the Basel system requirement, they had to also meet what was called the simple leverage requirement, which meant that their no matter what risk weights they attached to their assets, they had to, in order to be well capitalized, have at least 5% of their uh, total assets in capital. So the reason the commercial banks 
were not able to get their capital ratios down as low as the investment banks is, that on top of the Basel II system... They did have some special domestic... They had the special leverage requirement. Now, your third question... This is the key. Now we're at the key question. So what is the role of depositors? Who are the... Mm-hmm. And, and this is my... Um, I want to come back to something I've said a million times, but I'll keep saying because I think it's so important and people have trouble understanding it. It came up in the podcast with William Black. Uh, you know, people say, including him, well, the equity holders get wiped out. So, you know, obviously market discipline doesn't matter, but it, the equity holders, they get wiped out every once in a while. They expect that. That's why they diversify. That's why they have the upside. It's the fixed income folks. It's exactly. the creditors who have no upside, only care about the downside. Who are the what I call the watchdogs of, of recklessness? So if you take away their incentive to be the watchdogs of recklessness, you get more recklessness. Mm-hmm. So here's the question: In our story about a commercial bank, we know who the depositors are. They're people like you and me who have savings accounts in these banks. In the case of an investment bank, they're borrowing and financing their investments with a very different kind of thing. What is it? <laughs> Now we're getting somewhere, aren't we? Well, I hope so. How different is it, Russ? That'll be the question. Yeah, so, I don't know. So let's let's see. Suppose that they were suppose they invented something that was a very short term instrument. I'm not going to even give it a name yet. I know the name of it. This I find this mystifying. So keep going. Okay. Yeah. So they so suppose it's overnight. It matures overnight. Yep. And suppose that it's that its total quantity is even greater than the total amount of deposits in the banking system. So that there's this overnight money that they're funding themselves from of huge quantity. Maybe I'm going to say $8 trillion. We don't know. Still to this day, we don't know what the number was. But I'm going to tell you $8 trillion, okay? Now, if it was $8 trillion of what are called repurchases or repos, now look at what the politician and the regulator are facing. If this bank gets into trouble and it loses a significant percentage of its value, and since it only has 3% of equity, then that means that if it starts losing significant value on its asset side, that means that some of these repo guys aren't going to get their money back, or they're at significant risk now that they might not get their money back. So what do they as they start seeing this happen, they might decide not to roll over their repos. And what actually happens, it's a little bit more complicated. There were these things called repo haircuts, which just meant that they, they started requiring more collateral against the overnight uh, debts. To make a long story short, Russ, what happens is the government doesn't like the way that story ends. It doesn't want to see deleveraging, which means all sorts of assets being sold, trillions of dollars of assets being put up for sale all of a sudden in the investment banks, the possibility of investment banks going bust with counterparty risks, that means all the contracts they've entered into not being honored, leading to financial chaos in the minds of the politicians and the regulators. And so what do they decide to do? Well, you know what they do are going to do. They're going to apply deposit insurance to these debts of the investment banks. That's what, that's what we're talking about, right? And in fact, to the mutual funds, the money market mutual funds, uh, shares are going to be insured because they didn't like the fact that some of the Lehman paper might not be repaid. So financial intermediaries all over the world, whether they had, they didn't have to have things called deposits. If they had asset-backed commercial paper, commercial paper, 
um, medium-term notes, um, repos, even the shares in the money market mutual funds all got treated like they were just insured debts. So here's one. I, I sort of get that. Now let's – and I, I'd love to avoid going into detail on how the repo market actually worked. I like your shorthand way of saying it. It's an overnight loan. I, let's not talk about how it was actually executed for a moment. Maybe we can get away with without doing that. We've talked about it a little bit before a long time ago on this program. But let it, what was going on is I'm borrowing overnight, and the next morning I say, can I do that again? Yeah, exactly. And 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 the reason you're lending me overnight is that I'm putting up some assets as collateral. Yes, they're usually fine, and so far they seem to be totally okay. Uh, they seem to be worth what you say they're worth, and that's how that market worked in a very very uh, abstract way. Right, it, and as and as you could see, as your if if the assets start to decline in value, then and if they start getting a little riskier, either of the two. They start being perceived as at risk of decline, or they start declining. You start asking for more collateral against each dollar that you're lending me overnight. But where am I supposed to get this this collateral? Because my assets are shrinking. And so ultimately, what it comes down to is, as the collateral demands get higher, we start seeing that people either um, start selling assets off like crazy, which is causing asset prices to fall dramatically, or they they can't repay their debts because, which uh, in other words, they're not allowed to roll over their debts, and they might not be able to repay their debts. So you start looking at a situation where panic. Um, the and government it, says, well, let's just guarantee everything, which okay, is but, what we did. Right, but I need to, here's where we're real close to the, to the punchline of the story. Uh, try to tell me that repo story in the context, I understand that the government treated the people who lent money to these investment banks as if they were depositors who had insurance, whether it was because of political forces or fear of systemic risk or contagion or whatever it was. doesn't matter, but that's the way they treated them. Here's what I don't understand. What I don't understand is I want to make the analogy – perhaps I can't, but I want to make the analogy in our previous story of equity and leverage and capital ratios – so I'm Bear Stearns. Mm-hmm. I am. I am. Every, every night I'm borrowing massive sums of money. What, what am I doing with? Can you tell me the story of the eighty, twenty, ninety, ten? In that, sure. Can you tell Just me how it works? Substitute instead of deposits, call it repos. Instead of bank deposits, the way you're raising your money is with very. It was this overnight debt. Now notice that. Why do people like? Being the, the why do people like uh, they supplying use this, you? With yeah, why I want to I want to know that and why did this model become? Why was it so attractive? That's well, it comes down to the same thing. Well, it turns out that there's a very large group of people in the world, institutional investors, who, as part of their portfolios, want to hold something that they regard as nearly riskless, and that turns into what are called money market instruments: deposits, commercial paper asset-backed commercial paper, and repo. And so the institutional investors can carry these. These are all debt obligations by somebody, by banks, by commercial paper conduits, by commercial paper issuers, by investment banks. All of that list of things I described, which are called money market instruments, they are all considered very low risk. And there's a particular appetite on 
you know, a particular institutional investor's balance sheet where he has a certain amount of cash assets. And so as long as he, you know, he's inter- he's interested in some of his portfolio being in these very low-risk things. And so there's an appetite out there for from institutional investors to invest in things that have the, the properties of being very low risk. And so the investment banks were able to say, well, you know, you've got an appetite for very low risk things. We can supply those. We'll call them repos. And it's overnight money and it's collateralized. So if you ever need it back, you can get it back. Well, it sounds pretty good. And, and is, is as it long correct? as everybody doesn't want it back on the same day. But is, is it correct to say that, uh, one given that this is the shortest of short term loans almost the shortest overnight it's not an hour from now but it's it's overnight the the idea would be then that if i decide to change my mind and i want access to that i i want to do something more risky with my money instead of just lending it at a relatively low rate overnight i can cuz it's it's flexible it's it's, it's only a day it's only a commitment only for a, a day. day exactly so, so you have flexibility but you also have protection because you have collateral you know, you have collateral, and you also the short maturity gives you protection too, because things don't go south in in two hours in the world. Things go south over a matter of days or weeks, and so by having overnight maturity, you you have protection. You can get out. You know, commercial paper has a maturity. We're talking about commercial paper issued by, let's say, you know, non financial firms. What is commercial paper? Commercial paper is a is a uh, a promissory note. Issued by uh, anyone who's in the commercial paper market, it's rated, and it uh, typically has to have a maturity of under 270 days. I think it is. It is. Um, it's a negotiable instrument. I could, you know, there's a governed under a certain law. But the key thing about it is, it's of the highest quality. So that there are only two ratings that matter in, in commercial paper: hello and goodbye. <laughs> It's not like, you know, there's no junk commercial paper, okay? Commercial paper is being held by people as a cash substitute. If you start looking as an issuer, if your growth rate of your earnings or your sales starts to decline a little bit, you basically get, a you know, your yellow card or your red card like in, in soccer, and you're told you're out, you know? And when you issue commercial paper, the average maturity is usually about a month. So it's all it is, so, is, all it is, is a bond that has a short – it's a bond that has a short – uh, time frame from a very safe issuer, and because it's by a sh- yeah, and because it's a short time frame and a safe issuer, it's actually considered to be very liquid. And it's you know, it's not just that it's tradable; it's also just that you know that you can you can convert it to cash very quickly because it matures, and you know that you're you don't have to know about the issuer's prospects till eternity. You just have to know about them for a month. And so repos are even more extreme; they're collateralized by specific assets. You get to decide on a day-by-day basis whether you want your money back. You could also decide, I'll let you keep the money, but you have to cough up more collateral. And so it's a way, if, if the investors have a certain amount of assets that they want, that they consider to be very, very safe, and that's exactly you know what was going on, investment banks found a way to cater to that taste by promising something that looked like it was really safe. And it was safe, except if all of a sudden the investment banks all had similar kinds of losses of large amounts, and now they've got to figure out, well, how do we uh, convince these repo guys not to leave? How do we convince them not to demand such more collateral than we have, and how do we convince them not to leave? And the answer is, you can't. can't. And so if you can't, ultimately you start getting 
a meltdown in the financial system, it's all coming from the fact that the mortgage-backed securities are declining in value on the balance sheets. And so what's the answer? Well, the answer we came up with was just bail everybody out. Now, so here's that question. Here, here's not the, a very attractive you know, answer. Well, but here's the punchline that, that I'm still confused about. A lot of people describe the Bear Stearns um, events of March 2008 as a bailout of Bear Stearns. It's not really a bailout of Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns disappears. Mm-hmm. Their equity holders, as you we talked about earlier, did get – they got – initially were going to get two. They eventually got ten. Uh, it's down from 170. It was an unpleasant um, period of time there. It didn't turn out as they had hoped. But the real point is that the people who had held those repos – of Bear Stearns uh, were made whole by J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan Chase honored all of the – now, they were only willing to do that because the government guaranteed $32 billion of, of, quote, toxic assets. But the or, shareholders I, were bailed out too. A little bit, but I want to I put that to the side because in yeah. other cases throughout uh, these kind of what I call creditor bailouts, the shareholders were wiped out. True. Continental Illinois, they were wiped out. Uh, a lot of times we're only talking about bondholders, so like the the, the Mexico guarantee was 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 credit was creditors of Mexico. Yeah, okay. So so here's my question: mm-hmm. the cre- who were the creditors of Bear Stearns? Now I know J.P. Morgan Chase was one of the biggest ones, and they bought them, so that's a weird situation. And I was told maybe they were a clearinghouse, so what it meant to be their creditor was a little more complicated than just what we're talking about here in terms of repos and financing. So who got made whole? in the Bear Stearns rescue who didn't get made whole in the Lehman Brothers because they didn't do it? And who got made whole in Citigroup and, and these other examples? Uh, who are these people who were jumping up and down and with joy when they realized for a minute they were going to get wiped out and they realized, no, we're not. We're going to get everything back. Well, it's a broad range of, of um, holders because we're talking about many trillions of dollars worth of debts. And, you know, mainly short-term debts. Citibank was running conduits from which it was issuing uh, medium-term notes, commercial paper, asset-backed commercial paper. All of those people were at risk, but they ended up not losing a dime, right? So all of the holders of commercial paper issued by Citibank's special investment vehicles were beneficiaries of the bailout. Um, Similarly, all of the repo holders who were beneficiaries of the interventions to protect um, Bear Stearns, uh, to protect the the various banks who were involved in the repo market, too. I mean, repo was, as I said, a multi-trillion dollar market. But do we know know who they were? What's that? Do we know who they were? Who they were? You know, I I don't know who they were. The reason I ask... It's like, you know, we're talking about... (laughs) <laughs> across all these asset categories when you add them all together but but here's it's just you know i mean it's it's institutional investors broadly speaking and to some extent um those are, you know for example the lehman commercial paper is that that's experiencing losses that's being spread through the mutual the money market mutual fund industry right. and you know so we you know we we can kind of see who the beneficiaries are, but to a large extent they're institutional investors who are holding repo and um asset backed commercial paper and commercial paper and then of course banks that are holding interbank deposits so you're you're right that short term creditors largely institutional investors are the major beneficiaries exactly who's benefiting well, from which you know it's a little more com- well it's a little more complicated because they're two bit let me let me let me 
let me structure or frame this a little differently. Let's suppose it comes to be believed in the United States and maybe elsewhere as it turned out to be that uh, creditors, lenders, bondholders of large financial institutions were going to be made whole, which was true for everybody except Lehman's creditors. Now, Lehman filed bankruptcy uh, in uh, September of – I think September, October 2008. Yep. And I looked at their bankruptcy filing and their largest creditors – they had uh, – there was – the largest creditor was quite large. It was an American bank. I think it was Citi. And then most of their other creditors were Japanese and Asian, Korean banks who don't have a lot of political pull in the United States. So mm-hmm. I, I, I wondered when I saw that, were the other banks different? And in particular, you would think there would be two groups that would benefit from these kind of creditor rescues. One would be the creditors, obviously. They would clamor for rescue. They would call Hank Paulson if they could get on uh, – if they could reach him. But the other people, of course, are the banks themselves who profit from the opportunity to leverage. Mm-hmm. Those are the two groups that have the political stake in this in this system. I wondered – at first I thought, well, they're kind of the same because these guys overnight in this repo market, they're lending to each other. They're not just – it's not like there's some banks that are – investment banks that are that are repo banks, but there's – and there's some some that are – No, no, but it's not just the banks. It's all the institutional investors. Remember, we've got you know hedge funds, pension, pension funds, funds yeah. mutual funds, insurance companies. So we, we've got a large group of investors who are not part of the same institutions that are the issuers of repo or the issuers of commercial paper. So it's not just that they all are lending it to each other. Because it can't be. I, I, no, it's not. It's on net. There, you know, trillions. You know, we don't know the exact amount, but on net, it's the non-bank institutional investors who are, you know, internationally and domestically, who are the holders of, of these uh, these debts. So, what's the political economy of that? Why did the U.S. government save those folks? Well, and as you just pointed out, it didn't. It didn't in the case of Lehman, but. You know, it's a really interesting question. I've thought a lot about what's going on here. Um, I, I think that um, it's hard to really, you know, I, I don't buy into some of the stories that say things like, oh, you know, Hank Paulson wanted to save AIG because he cared about Goldman, but he really hated Lehman. And, you know, I, I don't believe those stories. I mean, I think that um, there was inconsistency. Make a good movie. It makes for a good movie. Could but be true. I'm not saying I know it's not true. I'm just saying, you know, that's not the way I think these these people probably behaved. I think that um, the main thing to say here is, number one, there was huge incompetence due to inexperience. The people we had at the top of this effort really didn't know what they were doing. Um, And I I mean that as a historian who's focused a lot of my career in research on financial crises. We had incompetent management. Uh, the Federal Reserve did not understand securitization. It did not understand financial risks very well. Everybody talks, my friend Ben Bernanke, he's a great economist. He knows a lot about the Depression. Um, I think he was not really aware of what was going on as of 2006 and even uh, early 2007. And I, I'm absolutely sure that Hank Paulson was not aware of what was going on. And even more importantly, they didn't even really know what they didn't know, and they didn't really know because of the U.S.'s experience, they didn't really understand crisis management. Now, what I mean by crisis managers, you know, I, I wrote a paper in 2005 with two World Bank economists who spent a lot of their life 
working in different crisis countries on how how you deal with financial crises. There's actually a group of oh you know a hundred episodes in the last twenty or thirty years of countries that had financial crises and how they dealt with them. There's a wide range of things you can know about this topic. We just didn't have any real institutional. Um, sort of memory and understanding of it. And I just think that we, we mismanaged it. So I, I look at the variety of experiences and the fact that we did some bailouts and didn't do others as largely reflecting just incompetence rather than some sort of conspiracy to sometimes help and sometimes not. But I'll tell you one other thing about Lehman. Oh, but I got I to gotta interrupt you there, Charles. You can come back and, and tell me about Lehman. Hold that thought. Are you really suggesting – that this relentless policy of uh, of the last going back to Continental Illinois of, of rescuing creditors is just incompetence. No, okay. I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm talking about. I thought you were asking me about you know why some why it was such a, a kind of random policy that you know AIG gets bailed out and Lehman doesn't. No, I agree with you. That's hard to know. That, yeah, that, it's, it's, it was a little bit chaotic. It could be you know their 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 public statements. I don't find credible. But it could be true. They oh, say. I agree. No, the public statements are not credible. But I'm going to tell you another one here. Yeah, Here's your ahead. secret. Here's the secret I'm going to reveal to you and your listeners um, without telling you my source. <laughs> in the summer of 2000. That's incredible, but go ahead. Okay, but uh, <laughs> in the summer of 2008, uh, it's probably pretty well known at this point that MetLife looked at buying Lehman. And a Met lot Life, of people did. Barclays looked was in the market. Right. There was a, there was a Japanese. Well, MetLife looked very carefully, and they really wanted to get into this area. And as much as they wanted to get into it, they concluded that Lehman was so dead, so under the water, that they couldn't touch it. That was not September of two thousand eight. That was sometime around I think May June two thousand eight. And someone called. Tim Geithner, who at that point was at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York as its president, and said, Tim, I'm a member of the board of a certain company, and I've heard something. And what it comes down to is, what I've heard is that MetLife has done its due diligence. As much as they'd like to do this, they can't do it. And so you have a deeply insolvent you better, financial, <laughs> yeah. financial institution on for, your hands called Lehman Brothers, for, and it's... And you've got to figure something out about yeah, it. Yeah, free ride on their uh, on their analysis and and get to work. Yeah, and the, and and then Geithner apparently poo pooed it, and the person on that line said to him, "Look, MetLife would like to do this deal. From what I understand, they would like the numbers to work. So what's their incentive for <laughs> for for not for being for so believing? pessimistic? Yeah." Yeah, for being pessimistic, they have no incentive to be pessimistic. They'd like to make it work. They're walking away, and Tim. Wake up call, man. Yeah. Now, if you want to start talking about incompetence, let's start there. Yeah. And then what happens with this incompetent individual? Frank, I have to be frank. He then gets promoted. Yeah, it's depressing. The um, to me, the biggest thing that disturbs me about that is the uh, when AIG was rescued, and there was they were negotiating, of course, in advance of the rescue to give haircuts to their creditors because they knew they weren't going to be able to pay them all back. And once the government stepped in, they, the negotiations weren't very effective because they just said, well, we'll just wait. And um, Geithner supposedly insisted that there be no discounts. And I think I don't understand that. Well, that, that one I, I'm more forgiving about because the problem there is you're playing chicken and you know the creditors are thinking, I know that the Fed is not going to pull the trigger on this because if they don't... <laughs> 
if I'm playing a game of chicken and you're driving the motorcycle with me and I'm driving it at you, and I know that I'm I'm wearing a uh, you know uh, some sort of a bulletproof outfit and you're not, you, you you don't have a helmet and I do. I know you're gonna you're gonna swerve away first, right? Yeah. And so I think the uh, the problem was people were correct in surmising that the government wasn't going to uh, allow further meltdown on the AIG deal, and so the creditors hung tough. And but they, they were said, able... but couldn't the government have said ninety cents on the dollar? Well, they could have said anything, but the point is, it's a game of chicken. The creditors could say that's not good enough. Let's go to bankruptcy, and the view was. That would have caused so much damage that even though it would have hurt the creditors, it was uh, it was something that they the creditors correctly surmised the government wasn't willing to do. So if you're negotiating with somebody and you know they're not willing to do what they're threatening, you're going to hold out, right? Yeah. Well. So the creditors had us over a barrel, which was the reason that Ben Bernanke argued we needed to have this resolution authority in Dodd-Frank. And I thought it was a reasonable argument, except... They tr- they crafted it in such a way that it's completely un- non credible. So you know it's just been one comedy of errors after another. I I just you know it's hard to understand. We're we're in exactly the same position again. Well, it's like it's like Fiducia. It's um, exactly it's like not, Fiducia. We fixed it, except we're not going to use it when it exactly. comes to show. So we really need to you know. We, I hope that you know your your program has been great at bringing out a lot of these things. The, the problem is. How many people have the hour to sit and listen to us, and then what are they going to do with it? Vote or something? You know, I'm, I hate to be so pessimistic, but the problem is that the people who are making so much money by ignoring these problems, you know, and buying politicians one way or the other who will ignore these problems, you know, is uh, is really our problem. And we have it comes down to the politics of this, and we're really not going to solve this problem very easily because. Americans need to understand it and hold politicians accountable. And judging by where we are right now with how much, let's say, economic literacy there seems to be in our country and understanding what's happened and who's responsible and what's wrong, I have to say I'm not that optimistic. I, I wish I could say different, but, I, but I'm not. Well, on the positive side, um, I don't agree with the analysis of Occupy Wall Street, and I don't agree with their solution. I think they miss, like you said, I don't think they're sufficiently economic literate, the people who are saying what they're saying. But they're onto something. Oh, absolutely. Uh, they, they understand that there's something not quite kosher about the way that the banks and the government are interacting. So I'm I'm a little more optimistic. Well, that, that's I, I like your optimism. And, you know, after all, Winston Churchill, I think, really got it right when he said, America will always do the right thing after it's tried everything else. My guest today has been Charles Calamaris. Thank you for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks. My pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.